Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. Hallelujah. Today's a great day. I, uh, Johnny DeLashmit messed me up. Where are you, son? Are you here today? I know you work till after midnight. Okay. Just that last night. We were still texting at midnight. And he just sent me a question. Amanda, I'm about to call out verses of Scripture I didn't send you. <laughs> Romans 8, 28. It's a favorite verse. Uh, many of us can quote it. And, I, you know, as Brenda referenced, in the midst of a summer, and we have not only an incredible heat wave, but the heat from every quadrant of life, so it would seem, uh, just, you know, making us sweat and swelter and figure out what's next, you know, Politics, culture, society, uh, world on the edge of the war. Everything's going crazy. What on earth do we do in the middle of all of that? Um, several, a uh, few months back, I talked about the, the wonderful joy that the Hebrews quotes what the minor prophets say, that we are part of a kingdom that is unshakable. When everything around us shakes, we won't. You say, well, I'm shaking. You don't need to. Please hear me. That, that's not trite. It's not small-minded or narrow in thought to just simply say, oh, K Sarah, Sarah. I'm not saying K Sarah, Sarah. I'm saying have faith in God. Right. Have faith in God. And, and, you know, there are times that push us up against the wall when we really have to, 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 to step up and stand on our faith. There's no other choice. And I think we're living in those kind of days right now. What's your which are wonderful. But let me, let me quote this. Let me share this verse with you. And, and Romans 8, 28, I love it. If Romans 5 is a snapshot of the biblical story of redemption, and what I mean by that, by redemption, I mean how mankind messed things up in the opening chapters of the Bible, and then God's plan to recover what was lost and all of the brokenness. It's all in a beautiful snapshot in Romans 5. Likewise, or in similar fashion, in Romans 8 is one of the most beautiful and condensed snapshots of God working in and through creation and continuing to work with us right now. So here's this verse of Scripture, and we know. So the and we comes at the end of a couple of other verses. Because he's concluding something that's been said in verses 26 and 27. Uh, in verses 26 and 27, he makes reference to the Holy Spirit groaning. Everybody say groaning. Okay? And that reference to the Holy Spirit groaning is the third time, if I recall correctly, in this chapter that the concept of groaning is mentioned. The first time it's mentioned, somewhere around verse 16 or so, it talks about all of creation groans. Why? Because the curse that happened fell uh, in, in the Garden of Eden. That, By the way, if you're new to Scripture or new to faith, that curse is referenced in Scripture. The curse upon mankind in general. The curse upon this planet in general. And the only aspect, watch this, of that curse that is broken, fractured, or shifted is mankind being redeemed. Creation is still broken. Uh, it, it crashed and burned. Um, it, it, it's still messed up, but somehow at the end of the age, 
it becomes this abundant, endlessly flowering proposition as the earth becomes the new heaven and the new earth, and they meet here in this amazing transformation. So that's coming. And it says creation longs, and, and then it talks about the sons of God next, that longs for the coming of the fullness of the sons of God. But the third time that groaning is mentioned, it's the Holy Spirit. And it says in that, it says the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. That word means a guttural groaning. Now, please hear me. I think in a broad poetic sense, listen closely, not a linguistic sense. When I say linguistic and say this word groaning, what it means in the original language, watch. 1 Corinthians 14 speaks of speaking in tongues in glossolalia, which is unutterable, uh, it can be uh, unutterable uh, phonetic uh, syllabic things that God says it's actually a language that is not understood by human ears, but by and through the Spirit. Well, when Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 14, also wrote Romans 8, when he says the Holy Spirit groans on behalf of us, I really do believe, along with uh, other commentators and scholars, one of my favorite ones in particular, that Paul is making a poetic reference um, to the Holy Spirit groaning for us and then by implication through us. So there's something born on the Spirit. Isn't it good to know in that verse, I think it's 27, it says, when you don't know how to pray. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been there? And, and life circumstances and situations are just so absolutely overwhelming. You don't even know. You'll hear people say, I, I don't even know what to say. But not only do you not only know what to say in terms of a description, but our inability to speak with any sense of clarity, we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I don't even know how to pray. And that verse says that when you don't know how to pray or what to pray, it says the Holy Spirit prays for us, watch, in groanings too deep for words. I do believe one of, one of the expressions of that is when we begin to pray in the Spirit in a language when we don't know what we're praying, the Holy Spirit knows what we're praying, the Holy Spirit is praying through us and us through Him. That's a powerful notion, beloved. And yes, we're one of those churches that believe in that, okay? Um, but even beyond that, you say, well, dude, if I, don't, if I haven't received or released the gift of speaking in tongues, does that mean my prayer doesn't count? No, because the second aspect of that is there is a Holy Spirit that I also believe. A few times I've stood in the hospital and stood at situations, and Glenn... All I could do is literally, I found, I, it was so, uh, what should I say, autonomous, I guess, or automatic or whatever, that I began, I found myself often in, in standing and going, mm, 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 Jesus. Can I tell you, listen to me, the good God we serve says that that's all you got. You don't even know what to pray. There's a Holy Spirit who groans along with you, through you, you through him, who comes alongside you and says, I'm right here. 
but the difference is where your groanings don't make intelligible or audible sense to the listener, the Holy Spirit says, I know exactly what you're saying. And you may not even know what you're saying, but let me help you translate that between here and the throne of God. And he says, when the Holy Spirit, in groanings too deep for words, begins to represent the cry of our heart that's unutterable. He says, in those moments... There is a God that does that. And in that moment, watch, then comes verse 28. Here it goes. Can you pop that back up there, Amanda? Right at the end of that verse, and it says, and we know. In those moments when the uncertainties and complexities of life have us so in its grip, seemingly squeezing the life right out of us, that we don't know what's right, wrong, good, or bad. It appears as though, as Malachi said, good has become evil, evil's become bad. Nobody knows the difference. What do we do? God, I don't even know what to pray. But when those moments begin to happen, wherein our groaning in the Holy Spirit uh, begins to groan through us and speak through us, it says, here's the realization that I guarantee to every one of you, and we know. Everybody say no. no. That God causes all things, including the things you're in. Do you know that word things is used seven more times, and it's mostly bad stuff. Things. Life, death, principalities, power, height, depth, all the uh, famine, distress, nakedness, sword, peril. Go on in the following verses. That word things pops up, but the list is going on. Here's the things. And the first list he offers is entirely negative. Peril, famine, sword. That's what he's pointing to just a couple of verses level uh, later. But he says, and we know that God causes all things. How is that possible? Because we serve a God that creates. We serve a God that doesn't need the substance of something to answer your problem. See, you look around in your life and God, and you say, God, there ain't nothing here you can make to bless me with. There's just no sign of it right now. But beloved, if you bother to turn back to the opening parts of your Bible, the opening two chapters, you'll find a God that begins to create. And the opening words say it was formless, nothingness. There was nothing, nothing. And watch, and he begins to create. And he said he made the sun and the moon, and it was good. He made the sea and the land, and it was good. He made creatures, and it was good. Eleven times, he says, and it was good. See, here's the good news. God said, I want to start from the very beginning and make a declaration that when I go to create, when I'm done, it will always be good. And number two, I don't need, I forgive the double negative, but I love it. We're in East Tennessee. I can get away with it. I don't need nothing. You don't need to bring me a thing. But God, I've opened my hands, and I don't have anything for you to work with. God says it's all good. I got practice at the dawn of creation. I stepped up to the blackness and nothingness of nothing. And I began to speak, and by my word, and by the breath of my mouth, and the glory of my own existence, everything that you see that's there was called into existence. I create out of nothing. 
And so when you stand in those moments of nothingness and you don't know what to pray, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do, God says, I want you to know that there's a spirit. If you're a child of God, that Holy Spirit lives in you. There's a spirit living in you, walking with you, by you, who begins to pick up on those groanings and your absolute speechlessness to go forward and take a next step. And he says, just come here. Let me talk for you. And we know. You ever seen somebody like that? They're weird. (laughs) They spend a little time with God. They come out of that moment, and all of a sudden, there's a countenance shift on them. It's called the glory of the Lord. It's called a moment. See, the glory around here, and I don't have time to explain, we substitute God's self-implanted opinion, and there's a deeply biblical reason for that. See, at that moment, when the Word of God written on that page by the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, begins to be written on my heart. At that moment when there's something there that doesn't make sense here, and I'm not feeling it, but God begins to write it on my heart. I walk away from that moment, and nothing in my circumstances have changed, John, but I step up and say, and I know that God causes all things to work together. Watch. For my good according to his purpose. That word purpose is an amazing term that covers an expanse of application. About a hundred times I think some version of it shows up. But by the time you finish studying and reading it, that that, that for, for, uh, for our good and for his purpose, watch this. It's used to describe... This is going to be everything from showbread. Showbread was the bread intentionally placed on purpose. I mean, let me go ahead and give it away. The word in, in its most, I guess, condensed sense means an act of purpose on purpose. I want to say that again. You really need to let that sink in. An act of purpose on purpose. In other words, you're not an afterthought. You're not an accident. See, God brings the the New Testament writer Paul in Romans chapter 8, please listen to this, he brings the full weight of the force of creation. The full weight reminding us of a God who created on purpose. He didn't say the sun and the moon was an accident. It was an act of purpose on purpose. And he said, and it's good. He said, every time I want you to know, if you can find good, you're going to find purpose. If you can find purpose, you will irrefutably discover a God that is good. Are you sitting here this morning, and you're standing here in the heat of this life, again, as Brenda described, and all that we're in and wondering, I, I, you know, I'm, I don't even know what my purpose is. I've asked several young people looking at the world situation, and they, I don't know if I can just make it through my freshman year in college, if I can just make it through, I don't, I don't even know what my sense of purpose is. But beloved, when you begin to worship a God that is good, if you will pursue a God that is good, can I guarantee you this? You will come away with a sense of purpose, because once you understand that you are an act of purpose on purpose, everything begins to change. Now watch this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Look at the person next to you and say, just ask him this and wait for the answer. Say, do you know Jesus is your Savior? Come on. 
I know you can say, well, what if the person doesn't know? Then they'll tell you they don't, and you get a chance to pray with them. Watch. Now, I would guess 90% plus answered in the affirmative, okay? Then, then look at them. The Word of God, as a matter of fact, in the very next verse, it talks about those who he foreknew, he predestined to, to be the called of God. Why? John, you're the called of God. And that means you have purpose. And the purpose that he has for you is not an accident. It is on purpose. Beloved, there's nothing more quickening than any moment in life. If God can burn, allow God to burn that indelibly on your soul. Why then in Genesis chapter 3, watch. When you get to verses 1, one Genesis 3, 1 through 5, the adversary slithers in, and he challenges their purpose. Watch, the very first conversation. And he uses two of our words right here. He says, "For listen, go ahead and eat of that other tree. For God knows that when you eat, you'll be able to know good on your own. And you won't need to know God to know good. You won't need the God of goodness because you will be the God of your own goodness. And that is where I talked about this several months ago. You fast forward. You fast forward to the story in Exodus 33 and 34 with Moses. Moses has come to a place. The people of Israel have done stupid stuff, sinned in the sight of God. They've worshipped a golden calf. And God says, listen, I'm going to just kill them. And Moses says, don't do that. And God says, fine. And I'm just going to go on from here. And I'll go with you, but I'm not going with them. And Moses says, that's not the God who you are. Now, I know I'm creating questions for you that I have answered in the past, but I don't have time here. They go through this whole exchange, and they're going back and forth. And suddenly, Moses, out of nowhere, says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me the glory I just saw a couple days ago on the mountain. Because the God I encountered up there and that penetrating sense of radiation, of, your, of the radiating sense of your presence that just pierced me through, somehow this isn't the same God. Am I even talking to the same God I was just with? He says, show me your glory. And God doesn't come back with, we weren't talking about my glory. We were having a discussion about these people that have lost their mind. But God doesn't do that. He immediately says, yes, I will. He says, I'm going to let my glory pass before you. You can't handle it all. I'll just let you see the backside. But after I'm done passing by you, what does he say? I'll let you see my glory, and you will know that I am awesome, holy, omnipotent, powerful, incredible, love. No, he says, you'll know that I'm good. Can I tell you that the disruption of the human soul started with the seed, the adversary, is God able to pull off in my life what I've hoped and believed he's able to do? That is the question on every human heart that happened at the curse. The adversary still slithers in. He did the same thing. Watch. The Bible refers to the first Adam as the first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam. Did you know that same kind of encounter happened in the wilderness between the adversary and Jesus Christ? And it was essentially, Glenn, a replay of, of Genesis chapter 3 where the adversary shows up and he says, listen, let, let me show you a couple things here. It, and ultimately he says, if you'll worship me, I'll give you this. 
But the second Adam doesn't fail where the first one did. He looks the adversary right in the face and he said, you worship the Lord God and him alone will you worship. He alone is my source of worth. Please hear me. The adversary every day still does the same thing. I've said this since the beginning. In Revelation chapter 12, he's before the throne of God as the accuser of the brethren. That's us. But in the opening, that's at the end of the Bible. At the front of the Bible, he is before the throne of man accusing God. Do you see how he flips his script? Same thing. But, uh, but the problem is, is where we might be uncertain about God, God is never uncertain about us. God's never uncertain about us. And so in that revelation scene, he sort of flicked right out of the the heavens, and and the ability to propagate that question anymore. But, beloved, hear me. When you see the replay of what happens in in the wilderness, and God and Jesus, the Son of God, when he looks at the adversary and he says, let me tell you something. Ultimately, what it boils down to is a question of worship and worth. Where are you going to find your worth? Beloved, as you begin to say, Father, I don't understand what's going on around me. I don't get it. doesn't make sense. I don't know what to say, pray. I don't even know what to do next. God says, it's okay. If all you do is come to me with a groan, I'll use the groan. If all you'll come to me with a guttural cry of uncertainty, I don't know what to do next. I don't know what next step to take. God says, I'll use that. And we know. And you want to know where this chapter ends up? Now, I'm not getting any flashing lights, so I'm assuming we've had another computer crash or power crash this morning. Is that correct? I'm not seeing anything. Everything's gone blank up there. I hope heaven is still open. um, In the closing verse uh, of, of Romans 8, I'm pretty sure it's the closing verse, but when it says to us, it says that, and we know, that neither height nor depth, uh, nor things present, nor things to come, angels nor angels or demons, can set... can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can I give you one more little Bible picture? Come on, hang here with me. <laughs> <clears throat> I love this. And I've, I've written to several theologians and commentators on this. And that in Romans 8, when it says that neither angels can separate us from the love of God, the question is, what angel has ever served any purpose of separating us from God at all? And of course, if you turn to Genesis 3, you'll find the first disclosure of seraphim. These horrific beings that show up in in Isaiah 6 and then in Revelation 4. Uh, These beings that are around the throne of God and they swirl around it like in a globe, a sphere around it crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then later it says who was and is and is to come. But you see prior, watch this. Prior to the death of Jesus Christ, there's a whole lengthy teaching on this. If you want to know about it, email me, Tom at New Hope Online. Tom at New Hope Online. I'll send you a link to the teaching. Those seraphims served the purpose, starting in the Garden of Eden, 
of separating sinful mankind from the presence of God. And the very simple reduction of that is if sin comes into the presence of a holy God without being atoned, you die. So the first act of mercy, if you will, was God positioning those seraphim in Genesis chapter 3 to keep them from living in a forever state of death. God began redeeming right there. But here's the thing. A matter of fact, when Isaiah pops into that dimension and God, they sees these creatures crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Almighty. Watch what he says. He says, woe am I. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the implication is I'm going to die. But it said he was given a temporary atonement. Go read it in Isaiah 6. Can anybody tell me here by our faith and doctrine who atoned for us in Hebrews once and for all? The Bible, who, who did that? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the cool thing. In, in Revelation 4 and, and 5, at the end of 4 coming into 5, um, when John cries out, boy, there's no one worthy to open the scroll and read the promises and unleash the possibilities. And the, uh, one of the elders said, look. And he turned and he says he looked and saw a lamb, watch, standing between the creatures and the throne of God. What does that mean? Hebrews says that Jesus, when he died, ascended to the heavenlies and took his seat on the mercy seat. I don't have time. It'll be linked in that same teaching, by the way. Took his seat on the mercy seat. Here's my belief. The seraphim, God didn't need any more temporary atoners. And neither did he need to keep people back away from the throne of God because now the permanent atonement was there as the new gatekeeper to God's presence. None other than Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God himself. And I believe this because after chapter 4, Hans, you never hear again the words holy coming from the, the lips of those seraphim. For the first time ever, their song or their declaration changes as you get into chapter 5. And it says they join in the song of the redeemed. Read it all the way to the end. That says this, worthy art thou to receive glory. They're singing to the Lamb of God. Because you redeemed from men from every tribe and nation by your blood. See, I believe Paul, when he writes... And he says, I know a man that ventured into that third heaven. He is speaking anonymously about himself. I believe part of the revelation that he had of peering into the heavenlies is that closing verse of Romans chapter 8, verse 39. He says, I want you to know I popped in there. And those beings that were first created as administrators of divine justice, these seraphim that essentially said, stay back. If you pass here, there's nothing but holy. And if you have sin, you die. But beloved, when the lamb stepped in, not as a temporary atoner, but as the, perp as, as, the, as the final atonement for all things, here's what I believe. Why you don't see those seraphim anymore? Because I believe the father leaned over and said, you guys can take a seat. There's no reason for you to keep anybody away anymore. The lamb is here. 
Now the lamb controls the access. Either they will accept his blood and be atoned, or they'll refuse his blood and be turned away. But he is now the new gatekeeper, where you could never, he's saying to the seraphim, where you could never provide uh, the atonement in a permanent sense that would allow holy God to become a God of love and grace. He said, I want you to know that lamb has taken the seat right here forever put, and now I want you to know that nothing can separate me from the love of God. What, what did I say? What can separate me from the love of God? Watch. Say it again. Split that word into two syllables and say it. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes... How can we reverse this? And we know that there is no thing that God can't cause to work together for his act of purpose toward me on purpose where I will discover one more time that God is good. And beloved, there is no moment of greater revelation than my next encounter in worship as I lift up holy hands and I don't know what to say or sing, but as I approach the throne of God and Psalms tells us that God is enthroned on the praise of Tom. He's enthroned on your praise. I don't need to wonder how close can I get because God said about about the time the lamb showed up, those beings that were put in place to keep you back so you wouldn't die, I put a lamb there now and said, now, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, uh, in the love of God in Christ Jesus, including the angels that I posted there. Whoa! Is there anybody besides me today that is thankful that Jesus Christ the, resu- the crucifies, resurrected, and ascended Lamb of God put some seraphim out of a job. Is there anybody beside me that is glad that I can now walk up to a God and where that goodness had been held in check, now I know that no matter what I face, no thing can separate me from the love of God, including the things that I'm facing right now. When God says, I will cause that to work together for another display of my act of purpose toward your purpose, because you're called of God. And you will discover, I haven't run out of doing good. Stand to your feet, please.